Amen. Please be seated. David has kindly offered me the opportunity to give you a ministry report about Reformed Theological Seminary, and I'll do that briefly this morning. As you know, uh, this week, RTS Jackson begins classes for the summer, Greek and Hebrew and counseling courses at a new location, just five minutes away from you. And Reformed Theological Seminary really has not been far from you from the very beginning. Uh, you may not know, but Reformed Theological Seminary would not exist apart from this congregation. The leadership for Reformed Theological Seminary uh, largely has been drawn from this congregation for the last 60 years. Um, RTS began in a prayer meeting in Memphis in 1963 when Sam Patterson, who was the head of French Camp Academy, knelt in prayer with John Reed Miller, the pastor of this congregation, Bill Stanway, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, Hattiesburg, James Spencer, Erskine Jackson, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, Kosciuszko, and prayed that the Lord would start a new seminary. Not long after that, Sam Patterson came to meet with an elder of First Presbyterian Church Jackson named Erskine Wells. And he said, Erskine, we've got to start a new seminary. And Erskine said to Sam, Sam, you're crazy. We don't have money. We don't have professors. We don't have students. We don't have books. We don't have buildings. And we don't know how to run a seminary. And Sam Patterson said, Erskine, how big is your God? And Erskine said, when do we start? And Sam said, now. And on Christmas Day of 1963, it was announced that the Reformed Bible Institute would begin teaching courses in a matter of weeks. Reformed Bible Institute became Reformed Theological Institute in 1964, and in 1966, it opened its doors as Reformed Theological Seminary. Fourteen students came that first year. By the way, Erskine Wells would sit them down and say, now, now men... I cannot guarantee you a job when you graduate from Reformed Theological Seminary. You may be marked for life by graduating from this renegade institution. Uh, but the students came anyway, and now at any given time, Reformed Theological Seminary is teaching about 2,000 students. It's the largest Reformed Seminary in the world. We have eight campuses in seven states, and we also cooperate in two foreign nations doing theological Education. It really is a remarkable story, but it all began right here. Sam Patterson considered a letter that he wrote to John Reed Miller, the pastor of this church, the beginning of RTS. And in fact, the elders of this congregation had set apart a large sum of money to endow a chair at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, if they would promise to put a Bible-believing evangelical in that position. They wrote back indignantly that they would not be bought and manipulated by anyone. The elders of this church said, that's fine, we'll put the money in the bank, and uh, if you change your mind, come back to us. That money was used to start Reformed Theological Seminary in 1966. So we have a close and wonderful relationship with this congregation. The new facilities would not have happened without the work of Richard Ridgway, an elder of this congregation, and Larry Edwards, a deacon of this congregation. They have worked like they were on staff for the last couple of years to get this new uh, facility up and running. And Stuart Swayze and many others of this congregation have materially 
committed themselves in significant ways to this wonderful thing. We hope you'll come by and visit us. There's a bookstore and a library that we hope that you will enjoy. I want you to know that RTS is still committed to our original mission. We exist to serve the church in all branches of evangelical Christianity, especially the Presbyterian and Reformed family, by preparing its pastors, missionaries, church planters, campus ministers, counselors, educators, and leaders through a rigorous program of graduate theological education that is committed to the authority and fallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, Reformed theology as it is uh, uh, represented in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Great Commission. A, a, a happy story that you may be encouraged by is this. Our very first graduate was Tim Fortner, the brother-in-law of Brister Ware, who discipled the current campus minister at Jackson State University with Reformed University Fellowship. That just, to, just to show you a connection from the very earliest days of the church to right now. Uh, gospel ministry has been going on. We thank you for the support that you give, especially in prayer for Reformed Theological Seminary. And some other time when I have more time, I'll tell you more about it. But the most important thing for us to do today is open God's word and hear what he has to say to us. And so I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8 in Titus chapter 3. And I want to think with you for just a few moments this morning about how Christians ought to relate to the world and society around us. I think almost all of us are aware that we are living in a world and a culture that is becoming more antagonistic towards Christianity, Christian institutions, and Christians. What are we supposed to do in that context? How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to publicly behave? The New Testament does not leave us without an answer to that question. Repeatedly, there are passages in the New Testament that tell us how we are to relate to the world and culture around us. And this is one of those passages. We could have gone to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, where Jesus says, be salt and light. We could have gone to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We could have gone to many places like that in the New Testament, but I want us to look at this passage today because it gloriously ties together two or three things. Number one... It tells us what our posture ought to be towards the world, even a sinful world that is antagonistic towards us. Number two, it spells out some important motivations for why we live the way we ought to live in the Christian life. And thirdly, it beautifully explains the gospel and the relationship between salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone and our doing good works. How do those two things go together? This passage explains. So this morning, I hope that we can look at God's word and learn about those things before we even read God's word. Let's ask for his help and blessing in prayer. Let's hear the, let us, let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And then if you'll look further down in the passage to verse 14, he goes on to say, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. So how are we as Christians to respond to a world, a culture, a nation that is increasingly antagonistic to Christians and to Christian institutions and to Christianity itself. Well, Paul tells us here, and I I want you to see that the main thesis of this whole passage is simply this. We are justified by God's grace in order to be careful to engage in good deeds. The the way that Paul wants us to respond to an antagonistic culture is by loving that culture well in our behavior so that we are seeking its well-being in the way that we behave. But we do that because we're justified by God's grace, not because we're justified by works, not because we're justified by what we do. We act that way 
because God has saved us by grace. We're not trying to earn our salvation by our behavior. No, our behavior is the result of God's gracious salvation of us. So that's, that's what we're going to look at together this morning. I want you to see three things here. Paul teaches us first about our public Christian witness, especially our conduct towards our neighbors and our community, our society, and our culture. And you'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, Paul spells out several important motivations to our behavior. I love that the the Bible, when, when God tells us to do something in the Bible, he frequently attaches to it why. You know, God could just play the authority card. You remember, you remember when you went to your dad and you complained about what your mother had told you to do? Dad, mom told me to do such and such. And he said, did your mama tell you to do it? Yes, do it. That's the appeal to authority. Why do you do it? Because mama told me to do it. And by the way, that's a very good reason for obedience. But it's interesting that so often, whereas God could say, I told you to do it, he will tell you your motivations. He'll provide for you a why in that behavior so that you'll understand the logic of what he's asking you to do. And then finally, I want us to look at how Paul explains the gospel in this passage, the way that our gracious salvation relates to our good works, the way justification and sanctification go together, the way good deeds are the fruit of grace in the Christian life. Now, if you want an outline that rhymes, I'm not really good at that, but you could, you could say witness, why, and works. Witness, that is how Christians witness in their behavior to the non-Christian world, why we relate to the non-Christian world this way, what are our motivations for relating to the non-Christian world in this way, and then works and God's grace, how they go together. You see how I say I'm not very good at the rhyming thing? But that's the outline that we're going to follow today. First, let's look at witness, our godliness towards non-Christians in relation. And Paul here spells out two groups those who are in public authority, and all people in general. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He's speaking to Titus, who's pastoring these Cretan Christians. And he says, Titus, remind them to do seven things. To be subject to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. So one thing that these Christians are going to do is they're going to respect public authority. And that would have been hard, right? Because these people in public authority were pagans. And that's a reality that we have to bear in mind today. Very often the people in public authority that we are called to relate to are pagans. 
He says, be subject to them, be obedient to them. Then he goes on to say a third thing. Be ready for every good deed. So our, our posture is to be, I want to be ready for every possible opportunity to do a good deed. I want to be ready to seek the well-being of other people as a Christian. Fourth, malign no one. Ooh, that's hard. Because we like to complain. And we especially like to complain about people who are in authority. He says, malign no one. Fifth, be peaceable. Not contentious, peaceable. Gentle. And seventh, showing every consideration for all men. So here, here, here he paints out, here's your posture. In a fallen world, in a sinful world, in a world where there is antagonism towards Christians and towards the gospel, how do you behave? Be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good deed. Malign no one. Be peaceable, gentle. Show every consideration for all men. These are seven civic virtues that Paul wants Christians to cultivate. And this is not unusual in the New Testament. Jesus, you remember, in Matthew five sixteen says, Let your light shine before men so that they will... See your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul is just ripping off Jesus here. That's all he's doing. It's plagiarism. He's simply saying what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16 with a little elaboration. Peter says the same thing, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, which just proves to you that Peter and Paul were listening when Jesus taught. Okay? Peter says the same thing. Make sure that your behavior bears good testimony to the unbelieving world around you. Now, Paul does not think that that means that the culture will be converted or that they will like you. It's it's very interesting that in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, when he exhorts us to do good works, to the watching world around us. He, he says, they're going to slander you. So he doesn't, he doesn't expect that just by doing good to the world around us that the world will like us. This is very important for us to understand, especially the younger people in this congregation. No good deed of yours will go unpunished. Do it anyway. Okay? do it anyway. No good deed of yours will go unpunished. Uh, If you believe what the Bible says, no good deed of yours is going to go unpunished. Do it anyway. Because you're not doing it because it always results in the world changing its mind or being converted or having a more favorable opinion of Christians. You're doing it to glorify your Father in heaven. And either now or on the last day, they will come to see reality. We hope now. We hope it doesn't wait until the last day. 
for them to see reality. But what, whenever it is our job, glorify the Father in our doing good deeds, good works, showing consideration for all men, being ready for every good deed. That's the public posture that Paul wants us to take. That's the witness that we're to bear to the unbelieving world, to show godliness in the form of being concerned for their well-being to all. Now, Paul then explains why we should do this. That is, he gives us motivations for our godliness to others. And and notice, the first and most important motivation is in verse 4. It's because of what our God is like. Our God was kind and loving to us. We didn't deserve it. God was not kind and loving to us because we were awesome. God was not kind and loving to us because we were good. God was not kind and loving to us because we deserved it. He was kind and loving to us because he is kind and loving. And, and, and Paul doesn't even have to, he doesn't even have to pull out the, the application of that. What the point is, what, if our God is kind and loving we should be kind and loving. People ought to see a little picture of what our God is like in the way that we relate to others. Second motivation. The second motivation he gives is what we once were. Did you see what he said in verse 3? We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, Spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So Paul does not say, you know what, Christians? The world out there is foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful, and hating one another. So you just hate them back. It's not what he says. He says... We were just like that apart from God's grace. That's exactly what we were like. That's exactly what we would be apart from God's grace. So, love them. Love them all. Because we would be like that were it not for the grace of God to us. Third, he gives, don't don't you love the fact, he doesn't just give you one motivation. He's piling motive because he knows this is hard. It is hard to love a world that hates you. It's really interesting. I was with Brian Davis, who teaches for us at RTS Atlanta. He's actually a professor at Covenant College. And he said one of the main questions that the young people that come to him in his philosophy classes at Covenant College ask is, Professor, and these are Christians, Professor, show me how to love a world that hates me. Isn't that interesting? Show me how to love a world that hates me. Paul's doing that here. He's he's providing motivations for that very thing. Okay, here's his third motivation. He says, despite all this, look at what God has done for you. Despite the fact that we were this way, what has God done? He's saved us, verse 5. You know, he didn't look down on us and say, oh, aren't they wonderful? He looked down on us in pity and mercy 
And though he could have judged us justly, he saved us. And what's that supposed to do? It's supposed to produce mercy in us. Remember how Jesus asks us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins, our debts, our transgressions, the way we forgive others. Ouch, Jesus. You're going to make me pray that prayer? Ouch. But you, you see the implication of it. God's forgiveness to us is supposed to build in us what? A heart of mercy and forgiveness to others. And we didn't deserve that forgiveness. The world doesn't deserve that forgiveness. But he wants to build in us a heart of forgiveness. He's not done yet. There's still more motivation. Notice what God did not do. He did not, look at, look at verse 5 again, he did not save us on the basis of our deeds. In other words, God did not say, look, straighten up, fly right, and then I'll think about blessing you. Start acting right, and I'll show you mercy. Be obedient, and I'll save you. No, no, no. He did not save us on the basis of deeds. So what's Paul saying? You don't look at the world and say, when you get your act together, I'll start being concerned about your well-being. Now, I'm going to be concerned about your well-being precisely because your act is not together. And then he's not done yet. There's still another one. Look at verses 5 to 7 where he tells you what God is doing and continuing to do in you. He regenerated you. That's what he did. He renewed you by the Holy Spirit. He made us heirs and gave us an eternal hope. So he gave us a lot of things that we did not deserve. He was unbelievably generous to us. All of those things, Paul says, what? That's supposed to inform the way we relate to a wicked world. Now, this gives us a great opportunity to explore, just for a few seconds, the relationship between works and grace in the gospel. Notice, verse 5, we are not saved on the basis of deeds. But three times in this passage, we are told, verse 1, be ready for every good deed. Verse 8, be careful to engage in good deeds. Verse 14, our people must learn to engage in good deeds. Okay, so help me here, Paul. I'm not saved by good deeds. But I'm supposed to engage in good deeds. How does that go together? Glad you ask. Notice... Those good deeds are not the things that saved us. He explicitly says, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds. But we're all supposed to be ready to do good deeds. So where do good deeds come in? They are not in any way the root and cause of our salvation. 
They are the fruit and result of our salvation. They are not in any way the root and cause of our salvation. They are the fruit and the result of our salvation. By the way, Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, doesn't he? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then he goes on to say, for you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what's Paul's point? You were not saved by good works. You were saved to good works. And this is hugely important. When we teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that is true, we do not mean that it does not matter how Christians live. What we mean is, Good works is not the way that Christians are made right with God. Good works are the result of God saving us by grace. If I I could put it this way, God does not love us because of our good deeds. He loves us into our good deeds. He does not love us because of our good deeds. He loves us into our good deeds. And if you, I hope some of you know relationships like that, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your family, maybe with really close friends. Do you you have people in your life, it is a delight to do things for them. Why? Because you know they love you. And you cannot do enough for them because you know they love them. On the other hand, some of you may know relationships that go like this. You work and work and work to try to please someone who is never pleased. That kind of relationship will kill you. The other kind of relationship will give you life. That is the kind of relationship you have with your Heavenly Father. It's Father's Day. And we have the best father in the world, our heavenly father. And he loves us into good deeds. He doesn't say, child, I love you because you have done good deeds. He says, child, I love you. Be like me. (laughs) That's so freeing. It's so wonderful. We're set free to be who God made us to be in the grace of the gospel. The gospel is not be good and God will save you. God in his love and mercy and grace has saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have absolutely contributed nothing to it. And because of that, you're finally able to care about other people. You're finally able to care about the well-being of others. You're finally able, in the words of this text, to to do good deeds. By the way, there's a whole chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith about good deeds. Because the Reformers knew that good deeds aren't bad. Okay, Good deeds aren't bad. Unless 
you try to make them the basis of your salvation. And so Paul beautifully in this passage is saying, faith, grace, and good deeds, they all have a place in the Christian life. But the place of good deeds is not the basis of your salvation. It's the fruit of your salvation. And so what Paul is doing here is he's setting the Cretan Christians free to love and seek the well-being of others who are not necessarily going to treat them well. How can they do that? Only if they know that they have been treated graciously by the Heavenly Father. See, you, you have to figure out how to love a world that hates you. How can you do that? Only by the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that by your grace, you would enable us to let our light shine before men so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that we would do this in constant remembrance of your grace to us and in constant reliance upon your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.